From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I have Jakeen Fox on the show. He's a racial equity consultant and community organizer for progressive causes right here in Nebraska. If Omaha itself wanted a $20 an hour wage, we could just put that on the ballot and we could uh, we could implement those things. We could do that at the statewide level, too. And we don't have to depend on the whole of society to change our current experience here in Omaha. We could end up being a model. We're always the last people to do anything good. But what's our opportunity to be the first? We talk the Omaha that has been, the Omaha that is, and the Omaha that Jakeen thinks might be. Stay tuned for that conversation right here on Riverside Chats. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Jakeen Fox, a community organizer, racial equity consultant, and advocate for progressive causes here in Nebraska. Here's our conversation. So I think this is my first in-studio interview since Terrell McKinney before he was in the legislature. Okay, so, wow. Yeah, we had, uh, you know, I, I got the show, we did it as a podcast for a while, and then it was on KIOS, and I did a bunch of, uh, you know, I did a bunch of shows before we actually did our first air date, but then our first air date was April 2020, so we had the pandemic hit basically right then. So yeah. this is fun to be able to actually talk to somebody face-to-face. I know. I'm following big shoes, so I'll make sure I do my best. <laughs> Shout out to Senator Terrell McKinney. Um, we first got this set, kind of set up on Twitter because I saw you were responding to Aaron Sanderford talking about uh, basically the relationship between the Omaha police and the community. And so I know you've talked to Aaron Sanderford, I think, since then, right? You did an interview that was on YouTube. But I guess just your work here in Omaha, you're an advocate, a racial equity consultant. One of the main things that I'm always talking about with people is essentially why stay in Omaha. And in your case, your work requires an amount of optimism, right, Mm -hmm. of that Omaha can change, that there are people who will work to change it, that you can get sort of some uh, momentum going. So I'm going to start with just what, why, why stay in Omaha and work to change it as opposed to finding a place that uh, maybe already adheres to some of what you want to see the community look like. Yeah, I mean, I've given uh, Omaha like uh, an end date. <laughs> um, uh, just to be transparent, I've moved from Omaha three times now to my favorite city in the U.S., which is Chicago. Okay. Um, so I lived there when I was 19. I lived there when I was 22. And I lived there when I was 25 uh, for a total of like, 10 years off and on. So um, I come back to Omaha just because I have a deep sense of like community and family. Um, my in- immediate family is here and that's always a reason to stay. It's a blessing to be able to come home. Um, and so I take advantage of that as much as possible. Um, and I think there's a real network that I established with my earlier work in advocacy uh, here in Omaha that I left to, to pursue different um, options and career opportunities. Um, but those opportunities in higher, like luxury retail, didn't necessarily communicate like my interest in community and and, and activism and um, issues that mattered, social justice issues. And it's a tough uh, it's a tough career to break into in, in a city like Chicago because the people have such well established relationships and trust. Um, and I'm an outsider to that experience, and so I thought about my. Um, you know, what's my place in this kind of work? And I had established a a deep network here in in Omaha. So um, you go from being, you know, a little fish in a a big pond to um, 
being able to come home and, and say like um, this is the kind of job I want who wants to hire me um, and to and to be able to do that successfully is a blessing and so why run from that right why run from a place where you can have the impact that matters and really lead change in a way that uh, that is happening in, in other places so I come here because that work is so important and I'm well positioned to do it what's your end date for Omaha um, I'm 32 currently, so I said, you know, by 35, I want to see what kind of has shaken out um, because, you know, it's either continue to do uh, super important social justice work or marry rich and, you know, <laughs> live a fun life. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's tough. I, I, I just went on a, a trip recently to Wyoming and it was just it's kind of this you know place where there was really nobody around. And just to, to escape from it all versus doing like this show and just trying to be involved in the community. Sometimes, especially after the municipal election, it's got to be uh, 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 something that sounds nice to just, all right, I need to close this off for a little bit. I need to, you know, figure out who I am outside of the stress of Omaha sometimes, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, the municipal election just happened. Uh, what, what's your thoughts on how that shook out? Um, I think it shook out pretty predictably, um, and that does not communicate like my deep frustration with the outcomes of that. Um, but just a you know a recognition of reality and the place that Omaha is when it comes to justice issues and social issues, um, and the conversations that we're willing to have in the public eye. I, so I think um, you know districts played out pretty um, predictably. I was very um, you know surprised and and really amazed at. Um, the decisive vote in District 2 um, to oust Ben Gray for Juanita Johnson, and I'm really excited to see what she can do um, as an elected official to really communicate and and, um, land on the promises that she made during her uh, campaigning. Um, I was really disappointed to to see Cammie lose by such a small margin, you know, 500 votes is really just another week in conversation for people to understand better who she is and the amazing advocate she is for all people. so those are the races I was really um, interested in after the primary. Um, obviously, I worked on a couple of campaigns like Kate Gottsteiner's in District 5, and those were even really close margins. We took on some really um, big races. Uh, I worked in District 5 and I worked in District 2, and those are the most candidates in, in each primary. District 5 had seven candidates and District 2 had six. Um, so those were really just great opportunities and learning experiences for me. Um, but I think, you know, as far, especially with the mayoral race, that was a disappointing turnout for me. Um, but it just really communicates our opportunity to, to have a better conversation and to, and to spend more time um, with the people that we want to turn out in the way that we want them to turn out. Yeah, so it, it seemed like there was kind of this, uh, I don't know, as far as diagnosing in the mayoral campaign specifically, whether it was an issue of was it an issue of turnout in general, was it an issue of people really wanting more of what they already have, and you know was it a candidate issue? Was it just that it was right after a really volatile national election? So I mean, I guess one of the problems we have is uh, in Omaha in the municipal election. Is there a way to get more people to turn out, and if so, how how do you do that? Well, yeah, I think we have to acknowledge that uh, voter fatigue is real. And um, I think it's uh, really important that we have a conversation about connecting those two elections. Um, There is no legitimate reason for the city, like municipal elections, to be on an off year. Um, I think really easily we could join that with the national election um, where turnout is obviously higher and just increase the conversation that we're having locally. So I think that's a really important first step that we could 
could do to increase turnout for um, municipal elections. And then honestly, we need to talk to parties about how they're doing get out the vote year round, how they're doing consistent communication um, to have a better turnout for local elections. Obviously, District 2 had the lowest turnout of um, of all of the districts, uh, followed closely by District 4. Um, those are black and brown communities, and we're not seeing black and brown people vote in the way that would actually, you know, change how we're governed. And so there has to be a better conversation about that. And I think that is up to party, but also to local advocates and activists to really have um, a long-standing conversation about that that increases turnout. Well, this is one of the things that I, I wonder how you stay optimistic, right? Because I know you have your end date, but at the same time, uh, how do you convince yourself that it's possible? How do you how do you not despair or get nihilistic sometimes when you don't get the results that you need? You know that the city would need to really change. Yeah, I mean, so I guess internally I think about, like, the optimism and the belief in, like, my skill set, knowing that I'm a persuasive person, knowing that I'm a vocal person and have organized people to do, um, to come out for other issues before. And so just uh, my confidence is just a collection of experiences that I've had that if I want to bring people out, that I can do that. And so, and I believe that I'm not the only person that can do that. Um, and I, I've seen it happen for other issues. So. How do we just continue to do that good work um, on the issue of voting? And so it doesn't I'm not necessarily optimistic. I just am a realist. I realist in in a way that if we communicate well, um, people respond well. And, and we need to spend that time in conversation. So much of our work is an imposition to people as opposed to like a supplement for how they're already living their lives and how we aren't um, an extra pressure or extra burden to that. But communicating that like this act of voting or um, your your interest in an issue um, is a way to improve your own life and, and really draw those con- clear connections because I think government has done such a good job of making that process confusing, making it um, inaccessible, um, and we just have to do a better job as advocates to, to lower those barriers of entry. So you talked about persuasion, and I'm curious what you think about it because I think we have this myth that, you know, you hear a lot with Joe Manchin right now specifically that mm. everybody's just sort of out there waiting to be persuaded by the best argument and the best argument will win and that's how it works. And that's really not the way that our political system works, whether at a national or local level. And, you know, then that trickles down to voters where, I, you know, I don't know if a lot of people are even really looking at different arguments so much as like, this is my team, this is my team, right? So how do you enter in to persuade people about something different? What's the way to actually get persuasion to be effective? Yeah, I mean, so there's two ways I look at that. One is that for my personal life and like the experience I'm curating for myself, I'm not necessarily looking to persuade um, people with differing um, opinions. I'm looking to persuade the people that believe the same thing I do, but just don't participate in the ways that I would hope that they would. Um, So how do we craft a better message that says like your place in this is so important that like I'm going to value what you bring to this conversation. And so not to persuade them to believe a different thing, but just to act differently. Um, And I think too much of the focus has been to persuade people out of bad opinions when we haven't necessarily galvanized the people that believe the things that we believe to action. And so I think there's a prioritization that needs to happen in this work um, about the people that uh, we we assume would believe the same thing that we believe and have them act on those things. Um, So I believe in the prioritization piece of that. 
and I do believe there is an uh, there is an opportunity to examine like how folks are voting against their best interests. And that is a persuasive argument. That is a conversation that needs to happen from, you know, from outside of the echo chamber. So I do believe that a lot of people that vote conservatively are doing that as optimists for their socioeconomic status or their place in the social um, system might change, but they're not actively voting in a way that protects their best interests now. So how do we have that conversation? Because they are acting um, just in a way that doesn't support what they need. And how do we have that conversation persuasively? So I think there's that first part of prioritization. But then if we are looking to pick folks off from the other side, how do we have that conversation in a real way? How did you learn how to be persuasive? Uh, again, in my I started in sales, um, and and I'm the youngest of four, so um, I always had to persuade <laughs> them to try to do things that I wanted to do because they were older and they always got to decide. So um, if I wanted to do something, I had to be <laughs> persuasive. Um, and my mother and father are uh, communications and intelligence folks. Um, my dad is in the Air Force. My mother was a civilian but studied communications. And so uh, I come from a background of argument um, <laughs> and having to have a good one. Um, and then I worked in uh, luxury sales where you meet every kind of person from average everyday people like me to millionaires and billionaires. And you have to be the best salesperson to connect with them instantly to understand what they're here to do and and how do you best serve. Um, and so a lot of my thought process around uh, organizing is really that individual connection. How do I connect to the thing that they're interested in? How do I show them that there's a place for that inside of this new movement, inside of this other way of living, um, so that we impress on them like their value increases when they work for social good as opposed to decreases? How do we impress on them that, like, that you don't have to sacrifice something to be a part of this movement. You're actually digging deeper into your skill set, digging deeper into the thing that makes you feel powerful and joyous. And there's a place for that here that this uh, oppressive system doesn't always allow um, and rarely allows, except if you're doing it for capital. So that's where I, I place a lot of that um, persuasiveness and imagination. Um, again, I avoid the word optimism um, because it's just a real, it's a real thing. Like you can do the work that you want to do for the reason you want to do it um, in the world that we're trying to build. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Jakeen Fox, racial equity consultant and advocate for progressive causes here in Nebraska. So as a kid then, you grew up in Omaha? For the most part, my dad was in the Air Force, so I was born in Germany. We moved okay. around quite a bit. Um, but I did most of my education in Bellevue um, and am now moving. Well, I've lived in Omaha a couple times. Um, now moving back to Omaha in District 3 um, in July. Well, so uh, when you were growing up then, did you do like speech, debate, any of those things where you would have to make arguments? Oh, totally. Um, not for long periods of time, though, because my debate teacher uh, actually would always kick me out of class. <laughs> Because I always debated the things he didn't want debated. Um, <laughs> but I did debate. I did speech. Um, and, uh, again, like, most of this it comes from um, really my familial experience. Like, we had to have reasons why we did things. Um, mm -hmm. If there wasn't a good reason, we probably wouldn't be able to do it. Like, why do you want to go sleep over at your friend's house? And if it's not persuasive enough, you might not get to do it. Um, and again, as the youngest, like it was up to me to, to find things I like to do because I'm coming from a family of dominant personalities 
And so how do you stake your claim in that space as the youngest and uh, the most, like, liberal of the children, too? <laughs> was it a political household? No, not really. It was not necessarily in the in the way of, like, the body politic, but, like, political in, like, the education of, like, blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the most light-skinned of the children, um, and my mother is light-skinned as well. And so we um, we had to supplement, like, our experience with education because I would always be asked what I'm mixed with, um, you know, who you know who my parents were, that kind of thing. And I, I wanted people to understand, like, no, I'm black. And so I had to have an argument to, to tie into that as well. And so I was well-trained in civil rights, um, I was well trained in uh, in Black history, and so it was political in that sense that like your identity uh, really shapes how people see you um, and react to you, and you have to have um, some some mechanism of survival, and that was in our household intellect and and uh, and a persuasive argument. So I mean. It must have seemed like when your debate teacher thinks you're debating too much or arguing too much and you're getting kicked out of the room and just the fact that you seem to have a passion for making arguments and being persuasive that there must have been a point where you're like, you know, I think I can do something with this. I think there's a long-term plan here, right? So, But there's a lot of ways that can manifest, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it started off in sales. Yeah. Um, I was persuasive enough to get people to buy things and um, and buy things that they really wanted to buy but had so many reasons why they weren't going to. And so they would come into a store full of beautiful things, knowing that they wanted one and say, like, not this time. And I would really want to understand why. Um, because if you have the means... Um, um, if you're here already, like you're in the park, you're in you're well placed to do this thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the thing is just swiping your car because, you know, this is meant for you. And so I had to really start persuading people to do what, you know, after conversation was well in their interest. I would never tell someone if they didn't have the money to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, I would offer them plans on how to get in a better place to buy this thing that they really wanted because I believe in happiness, you know, and joy. And this thing was helping to do that. So um, I started with sales and it has transformed into into this um, progressivism. Well, it's interesting because there are a lot of people who go into politics have law backgrounds, right? And the difference between a lawyerly type argument and the salesperson argument, I imagine, is fairly different. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, we should have more salespeople uh, running for things or managing or consulting or you know, trying to sell something to the populace? Well, I think it's really important to have people of all different skill sets. I think so often, especially, well, specifically on um, a more progressive or maybe in even a democratic side, we believe there is this one right way of doing things. And so we spent, spend a lot of our energy and time debating on what's the one way to do this thing. Meanwhile, our opposition is well-versed in all types of persuasion. And they use Dr. Seuss. You know what I mean? They use children's uh, programs. They use um, lobbyists and, and consultants. They, go, they do the full spectrum of, of persuasion. And we oftentimes don't utilize our funds and resources to do that exact same thing. So I think for me, it's important to have all these different types of people in a good place to to make change because, again, we have to we have to stand strong in all those variations of argument. And right now, I don't think we do that as well as we could. So what was the moment then when you decided to shift to something more political? Yeah, um, well, I started in 2016 formally as the president of the Urban League of Nebraska Young Professionals. Um, I wanted to just help 
represent that uh, black young professionals in in a in a light that they deserved and were kind of like positioning for, but necessarily didn't necessarily have the support that they needed to to be well placed to to establish careers and upward mobility. And so I learned that argument. Um, and I helped shape it with like the partnership with the Greater Omaha Chamber to do um, the Black YP survey, um, which created Code, which is their Department of DEI work inside of the chamber now. Uh, that was one of the outcomes of that uh, survey, um, and those uh, opportunities for mentorship. And so um, it started there in advocacy and reaching out to different groups, utilizing my persuasiveness and my relationship building skills to just better understand the ecosystem. And through that work, we were able to say, like, oh, there's a place for this voice, you know, that hasn't necessarily been heard before in all these different aspects. And it became political because we had an opinion that we had spent time to quantify um, and people hadn't done that before. So I said, what else are we not being heard on? And it was this whole wide world of politics and advocacy um, that was missing the voice of black young professionals. And through um, the work that we did at that time, we were able to be impactful, influential in those spaces. And I I want to do that more for the black community as a whole. I'm talking with Jakeen Fox today, racial equity consultant and advocate for progressive causes here in Nebraska. Remember that you can follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and let us know what you think. We'll be back with more of the conversation after this break. Welcome to Back Row Center, a podcast from Filmstreams, an art house organization in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm Filmstreams Communications Director Patrick Kinney, and I'm joined by Dana Ryan, Filmstreams Development Manager, and Diana Martinez, Filmstreams Artistic Director. Dana, will you tell us more about what to expect from Back Row Center? Every month, the three of us will come together to talk about what's happening at Filmstreams and in the larger film world. Our theaters are places where we use film to put different art forms in conversation with each other and springboard important discussions about identity, politics, and art with moviegoers of all ages. We're excited to bring these conversations to you in a brand new format and hopefully have some fun in the process. As many of you may know, we've been going nonstop since our closure in March due to coronavirus. From our slate of virtual events and Q&As to weekly new releases available on our site, we're excited for a more personal way to bring you all in closer to the heart of our organization by hearing straight from the people behind the scenes. You'll get to know the three of us, as well as the rest of the Filmstream's crew, as this podcast develops. Even though we're closed, we still believe in the power of film as a collective, communal experience. So subscribe to the podcast through whichever platform you listen, and we encourage you to tell us your thoughts about future topics, the films we talk about, and stuff we need to watch through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Filmstreams everywhere. Until next time, we'll see you in the best seats in the house, Back Row Center. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. I've been doing this for a while, talking to the people who make our culture what it is. Check out the backlog of episodes wherever you get podcasts. Today, I'm talking with Jakeen Fox, racial equity consultant and advocate for progressive causes here in Nebraska. Here's the rest of our conversation. So 2016 was a politically volatile period. I mean, it's sort of the start of, I guess, the current political period in some ways. Was that influencing your decision? It did, but this is on the heels of murder after murder by police of black young people. Um, so 
my political awakening is really due to the injustice that happened with the um, George Zimmerman being being let go. Um, really shook me to my core to to see such a, a pure injustice to see a stalking of a young black man to see um, to see him let go uh, really changed how I saw myself in in the political eye. I knew that that could have been me at any moment in time. Um, and so, what is my obligation to to act now? Um, and so, murder after murder. Um, started this evolution of thought that like I am persuasive. Am I using those skills to impact this world in a in a in a more in a more true way, more authentic way, more meaningful way? Um, and so, all those things, along with the with <laughs> Trump, ah, um, like I just couldn't believe that with all of this evidence about the world that we need to live in, the world that would that would help us best, we chose Trump. Um, and so I had to be active in a way that I hadn't before. And I had to do that, not just for myself, but for this body of young black uh, professionals that um, were questioning their place. And, and I felt, okay, I, I cannot be, I can make it less personal and make it more like professional because it, it's hard for me to do it just for me, but when I have a group of people that are depending and not really seeing a strategy and how to and how to change that for themselves, like that's when my skill sets come into play in a, in a different way. I've had a lot of people talk about how something about the Obama years seemed to let people feel maybe not quite complacent, but feel like there was the bend of things was moving toward justice, right? That, you know, if Obama could get elected more times, then a lot of people who were more left-leaning felt like they didn't have to be quite as actively involved or feel like, no, this is on every single one of us in a more personal way. So, I mean, do you, do you feel like, uh, did your conception of the country change uh, before and after 2016? No, not at all. I think um, I think when we have kind of comments like that, um, I feel like it, the default is like white people's feelings in that space, okay. because as a group, I think black people did the same amount of work that they were going to do um, with or without him in office. And um, I think we're, you know, emotional, emotionally pleased at the outcome of, of o Obama's election. Um, but practically, we knew that our work would not change. And if you are a student of any kind of civil rights history, you'll understand that white lash, you know, the re-entrenchment of those bad ideas come after every social movement. Um, we've seen that the end of slavery, we saw that retrenchment of ideas when we think about like Jim Crow laws, we saw after civil rights, like we saw segregation, you know what I mean? Like there are there's a mark in history after every huge major shift where we are re-entrenched with those bad ideas until we do another big thing. Um, and I knew there's nothing bigger in the minds of Americans than who's the president. And so I expected that um, retrenchment. And I, I was shocked to see the depth of it, you know, thinking about now to the January 6th, like, even though I am well aware that these things happen, um, living in it and the depth of, of that re-entrenchment was really shocking to see. So um, 2016 drove me into action, but not just not because um, Trump was something new, um, but because we I didn't I didn't know the depth that people would go to to embody those ideas. 
So as far as your idea, it's sort of like there's the next big thing that then has backlash. What would be some of the big things? It seems like to some extent it's rethinking policing, right? Is that one of the big uh, societal changes that you'd like to see happen next? Yeah, I think it's really important that we uh, create a pathway to abolition. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that any good program or any good system like wants to see their necessity end. Um, if you're holistic about your impact, I don't want to have to do social justice work for the rest of my life. I want social justice and life after. You know what I mean? Like if you're if you're truly thinking about what's good for people, they would want an ability to say that the need for police no longer exists because we did what we needed to do to impact um, criminal behavior in a way that, um, you know, ends it and allows for people to live better lives. And so the fact that police want to exist so fervently and that will resort to violence and dehumanization and um, fear mongering to exist, I think really proves what they think about people about us, um, and just about society in general. And so I think a pathway to abolition is the most practical and logical solution to criminal behavior because we want to see uh, a world that prevents crime as opposed to responds to it. So my guess would be a lot of the people listening to their NPR station right now uh, have trouble picturing what does it look like a world without police, right? So, like, how do you do that? What what happens when there are issues? What kind of emergency services would there be? Or what 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 do you picture when you think of abolition? Yeah, I think again, the pathway to abolition is obviously the reallocation of funds to community programs that understand what prevents crime, what the root causes of crime are, like poverty, bad health care, um, lack of economic development, beautification. All of those things have a real social impact on how we see our ourselves and, and see our communities and neighborhoods. And so when we see real investment into the look of a, a neighborhood, if we see real investment in, in the way that we're able to get from place to place, uh, transportation justice, when we think about um, opportunities to to find well-paying jobs with low barriers of entry, um, when we don't recriminalize people that are coming out of penitentiaries or uh, criminal justice systems when they're allowed to pay their time and then move forward in life, those are the kind of things that um, showcase like a real road to prevention. And so I think real opportunities, uh, that real investments to re-entry programs that help people find jobs, um, that help people find jobs where they can work one and um, and pay for their life, uh, a job that, uh, you know, we need to talk about um, the fight for 15 and how we know in 2021, $15 an hour is not enough. Um, so how are we really doing long how do I put that? Long uh, solutions that impact how people are living their lives. Like those are real things that we can do that allow for a pathway to abolition. I think when people think about the police, they only think about the the criminal behavior and not, again, the causes of those things. And if I was able to get out of jail and find a well-paying job um, and I could not have to be on probation and be felt like um, I'm being monitored for the rest of my life that creates a dependency on outside factors to do well. Those are all things that prevent us from accessing society in a way that is beneficial and, and meaningful and healthy. Um, and so I think all of those factors have to be have to be included when we think about our roads to to abolition of police. 
So that's a huge sort of macro vision of what it could look like. And it's obviously to address those issues, it has to be outside of just a municipal level, right? Well, not all the time. Like, we could pass, uh, uh, you know, a better minimum wage here in the state. Like, we could pass those um, at the city level as well. Like, there are, we, we sometimes blow up those issues because we don't always feel connected to them. And I think there's a real opportunity for us to understand our place in in those things. And that's my job as an organizer to say, like, no, if, if Omaha itself wanted a, a $20 an hour wage, we could just put that on the ballot. And we could, uh, we could implement those things. We could do that at the statewide level, too. And we don't have to depend on the whole of society to change our current experience here in Omaha. Um, and obviously, we could end up being a model. We're always the last people to do um, anything good. Um, but what's our opportunity to be the first and to do it in a way that really changes people's lives for the better? Well, so how do we contrast that then? So that vision with what the city, at least in the last election or culturally, seems to want based on who gets elected? Yeah, I think we have to acknowledge who's voting. Like, we have to be honest about that. Like, black people did not vote for Jean Stothard. That's a, that's a fact. She won only four precincts in, uh, in North Omaha. And in that, we didn't have a mass of black people voting. And so I think the assumption that everyone in Omaha likes what Jean Stothard did because she won in a big margin um, really just ignores the fact that not a lot of people voted because they weren't impressed with the candidate pool. Um, and so we have to we have to take those things into consideration. I think what we really need to examine is where she did win at and the professed uh, values that those people said that they have and why they don't line up to who they're voting for. West Omaha, um, they don't want to be seen as racist. Um, they don't want to be seen as like anti-fact. Um, and, but again, their votes tell us a different story. So what's the conversation that West Omaha is having with itself to be able to come to terms with who they are as a community and as a neighborhood? What's our opportunity to talk to to District 4 who supported uh, Vinnie Palermo in a huge way, who supported Gene uh, Stothard in a huge way, and talk about how those values are lining up and who's actually voting there? Because I would, I would tell you that we think about South Omaha as a Latino um, districts, the District 4 is a, as a Latino district, but those aren't the people voting in the municipal election. It's white people voting in District 4 in the municipal election. So how do we really break it down to better understand um, who we're speaking to and the audience that we need to get engaged to see a difference? I talked to Gene Stothert, and there's kind of an interesting uh, lack of continuity between some of the people come on in the way that they describe Omaha. So uh, everybody, uh, most of the people running for mayor who talked to me talk almost exclusively about the divisions in Omaha, that uh, whether you want to draw specifically the line to, you know, the history of redlining or just the general cultural divisions, it seems like there's several different cultures that make up Omaha. There's not like the Omaha culture is one unique thing. Gene Stothard seemed to think that that was kind of a, a weird way of looking at it, that it's really not a big issue to think about division, that it's that redlining ended decades ago, that we don't really need to think about it that way. And so I guess when we go back to the idea of persuasion, it just seems like you've got people living in very different realities to begin with. And so they're not looking to be to have those conversations necessarily. How do you bridge that gap? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, not to be ageist, but we're talking about Jean Sather, who is, uh, you know, well into her 60s and has no real impetus to create change or change her way of thinking because it's led her to be successful. We're, we're talking about like a basis of like education, in fact, and the people that engage in education. I would I would 
feel confident in saying that I don't believe Jean Stothard has ever read a book about race, and I don't think she ever would because she doesn't feel like she needs to. She can hire a black person, and that can be her her way of helping the community or her way of education where um, we don't take into consideration the power dynamics and how when people actually disagree with her like I did on the um, on her advisory board, she kicks them off. Um, we don't have to, we're not engaging with those realities. Um, we're living a lot in perception. And so I think it's really important to understand, like, education begins really early, and on, early on. And as you can see, we had the uh, 1619 Project with Nicole Hannah-Jones, who won a Pulitzer Prize for that work around uh, centering the experience of slavery as, like, the foundational factor of America's creation and black people's contribution to the creation of democracy. And the retrenchment that we talk about is for <laughs> bodies of, of legislatures to pass laws that said they will not teach critical race theory in education. Um, and we haven't seen a, a proper response from progressives that says, no, this thing needs to be taught and will ensure that it gets taught at the policy level. And so like, I think education is so important, but the willingness to be educated, to be persuaded out of your opinion is is a tough one, especially for people that have found so much success in not uh, not engaging in fact. But again, like that's not she's not my audience. Um, I'm interested in people that agree, um, that have connection to the people that are persuadable um, and need a better vocabulary around how to do that. Like I can train the trainer in this kind of experience and hope that they do that good work in their own communities. But again, like we have, we have to form a basis of education, in fact, that allows us to have real debate as opposed to like this faux debate around like the perception of things. We haven't got to the reality yet. Well, so I get what you're saying about the audience, that maybe it's not worth arguing with people who don't want to hear you. But in another case, it's also like, you know, she got elected mayor, right? So to some extent, don't you have to try to get your voice to be heard by her to get some of the changes you want? I think it's important to understand, like, what power building really implies. Like, I find her to be a fixed figure in in opinion. Um, and is not persuaded unless critical mass uh, hits. And even then, she doesn't care because she lives in a gated community. So uh, I think it's, it's really important to understand, like, the mechanisms of power and that everyone's kind of, like, pillars are different. We do a training um, in community organizing that is called the pillars of power. And so we look at a thing or a person uh, and we establish what holds them up. If we don't agree with them, we take those pillars out. Um, I think a good example of that was uh, the work around Ben Gray and being able to really understand, you know, this is a staple of North Omaha, and to get him out of office would be a hard thing to do. Um, but it was necessary, and we uh, understood that it, to build critical mass, we had to have a different conversation. So I hosted 16 black leaders in the community on Facebook just to have a conversation around um, him and Colleen Brennan. This was around the time where he expressed support for Colleen Brennan. And now we find her to be obviously unsuited for office. And she was, um, you know, dismissed mm -hmm. with out of hand, which makes her the shortest uh, term city council person ever in Omaha history, which we're happy about. But that was an important time because it has to be strategic. And, and that was a time where we can say we've already knew that he wasn't serving uh, North Omaha in the way that the people think he should be serving it. And now he's made this other gaffe. And so what's our opportunity to communicate really effectively that this is a symptom of something, um, not a one-off? This is a way of thinking that needs to not exist in power in this place. 
and we do that with everyone, and we do that with Jean Stothard. And and uh, so again, no, we don't need to convince her. We need to establish a critical mass of people, including city council, that understand that something has to be done differently. If she wants to veto something, maybe there's an opportunity to override that. We have to really get, dig into the mechanisms um, because our opposition knows them well. What are your thoughts on the two-party system as the way to, I don't know, operate politics, but then also to potentially get change? Um, I think um, I think there's opportunity, there's space for other parties. I, I really do. I don't think that um, we just saw the marijuana party, you know, uh, is is now a thing. And what's stopping anyone else from doing that same thing? I am a Democrat, so um, I think. I'm in relationship with that party, so I feel an obligation to right wrongs and to communicate in a way that um, other people might not feel that obligation. They they feel like they haven't been served, and their their next place is independent, or um, or maybe with the marijuana folks. Uh, who knows? Um, but I think it's really important to to understand the the timing and the and the power of place i think i again i'm in relationship with the democrats and so i want to see that party um live up to its promises and i think they are heading in that direction with great pushes from activists and organizers uh, but i think again i would never tell someone to not do a new thing that's you know what i'm very passionate about is it, engage in a way that makes sense for you and if you need to create a new thing do it strategically and do it with passion and fervor because i think if we're not feeling communicated with if we're not feeling in relationship you have power as an organizer to change that experience for yourself so there's been a lot of people in the last year it seems who very publicly converted to or uh, switched parties right they switched to republicans so like don klein being mm-hmm. an example where I don't know that a whole lot of people care that much. Like you're able to change parties, you're able to be in a party, but to make it a big public event where, you know, it's like this baptism where all the big important people come and see you officially change parties. That feels like an odd development in our uh, our Omaha political system. What do you make of that? And why is that uh, why is that becoming a thing where it's celebrated in that way by people of certain parties? No, I think it's really important that that happened. Um, Don Klein changing parties, Colleen Brennan changing parties, Anthony Connor, the OPOA president changing parties is really affirming to me because I I believe if we're going to claim a set of values, if you're going to get the benefits of having that letter by your name, that you best represent us well. Um, And they weren't in any facet. Um, And so I thought it was really important that they do that. They tell the truth about themselves. You are Republicans and you were able to hide out in this space because not enough questions were asked. And we don't do a good enough job of watching the conduct and the outcomes and the and the intentions of of people once they're elected. I think we celebrate that election and we move on because that's how we build power um, by having someone with power next to our name. And so I love that they celebrated the truth about themselves. I love that we can place them in the category of not caring about people in the way that we do because we see how those parties operate um, with intention as well as impact. Um, So it was really affirming to me. Um, You know, I went on Twitter quite a bit and said, I told you so, you know, after each one, because we know the truth and we know how their outcomes have impacted the people that we say we care about. And so we have to reconcile that. It's not something that can be ambiguous anymore because people died, you know, and it was along party lines. It was along racial lines, you know, during the pandemic, during um, this social unrest, during police brutality. Those things are on party and racial and socioeconomic lines, and we can't be ambiguous about the reasons that those things are happening. But there's, I mean, there's also the, the element of, like, if I go 
become a Republican today, like Don Bacon's probably not going to show up and make a big ceremony out of it. And it, it seems like it, it also is because it's celebrated in such a public way. Do you feel like it's sort of setting up the us versus them in an even more dramatic way where it's like, here's all of these people who are elected in power versus everybody else. And I mean, like I'm thinking of this and specifically in the context of like when we talk about uh, police forces or we talk about like the mailers for Cammy Watkins, mm-hmm. where it's like, if it's not us, the people currently in power, it's a direct, like, violent threat that needs to be stopped. Is uh, That seems like that's a little bit more charged, and there's a lot more symbolically happening than just, oh, yeah, welcome to the team. No, I think it's really important because, uh, again, it allows for the majority to not be able to pretend anymore. Um, because, again, black and brown people have felt those things a lot of the time. It has been us versus them, um, and not by any of our own making, but by the systems of power that allow oppression to continue to happen. And white people didn't have to engage with that unless maybe they were in our same social economic class. But they didn't have to engage with that reality that there are specific things that Republicans will do that will intentionally harm black and brown people. And so this conversation around civility is really, again, engaging like our our need to be uh, seen as nice or our, our perceptions around the things and doesn't always engage with the reality that we experience as black and brown people on our, our physical bodies. And so, again, this is really affirming to me that, yeah, like celebrate that thing. Like I, I want them, I want them to make a spectacle because you are showcasing your agreement with the things we kicked him out of a party for. You know what I mean? Like you're showcasing that you're celebrating this person that has done so much wrong to a people that they had to be written a, a resolution about. Like you're showcasing that those are the things that make you happy. And so people don't get to sweep that under the rug anymore. They have to come to terms with that. And that's their job. That's that's the reality. That's the fact that we want to engage with. And so black and brown people do it every day. And now we're inviting other people to our experience. And, and we're saying, see, look, like we told you, you didn't believe us until they had a party for this guy. And so it's, again, I've gloated enough. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as uh, the future for Omaha in the next few years, I mean, what what do you see happening that you're excited about? What are some of the causes you're taking up? Yeah, I think it'll be really important um, to continue to show up to city meetings in a way that we haven't before. So um, I'm part of a a small group that started a council club with uh, some of the folks that uh, ran in in the city elections to continue talking about the city council and how we really are being represented on that um, municipal level. We're going to city council every Tuesday. I've made that commitment for myself, and we have a, a nice group of people that are showing up every Tuesday to hear what's happening, to hear how we're being governed, and our our officials are taking note uh, of us showing up. And so I'm really excited to see people uh, just engaging in a new way. Um, I'm also excited really to see Omaha just, uh, again, doing its best to to show up for these different movements as well. Like we just had a memorial for James Scarlock's family, uh, the anniversary of his murder by a known racist and white supremacist, Jay Gardner. And to see the community show up for that family in a real way was uh, was a great blessing. We saw the same thing happen for the memorial for Zachary Bear Hills. Like we're engaging these issues in a different way, the support, the people that need it. Um, and so I just want to see those movements continue to grow. And we're having conversations with city council folks in a different way than we have before, where it might have felt adversarial. And now that they understand that we can move people to do things, um, they're approaching those uh, conversations in a new way. So 
I'm really excited about that, and and we have our eye on the legislature as well. Uh, I could talk all day about what I'm excited about. Well, but. You, yeah, you sound excited. You sound. I mean, it's it's tough. I feel like when I started the show, it was easier to be naive, and usually I kind of walk away. Like you know, even if I talk to a really good person, I just like I I don't know about this. I'm feeling pretty down about the whole system. Mm-hmm. But you genuinely, I mean, I, I know you got your time limit before <laughs> you you lose faith, but you're feeling okay about things. Um, I I am feeling okay, and I think that's the, such an important part of like being in community. You believe that you're doing things on your own. You're out here floating around by yourself, and as you get to know people and know them in a real way, you understand that like, oh, these these things were happening, and I just wasn't aware. And so I want people to get more engaged in community because you aren't alone. You're doing things in in a community, in the ecosystem, and the more we know each other, the more strategic that can get. So. I am excited about the strategy that's are de- that are developing from these conversations. And so I'm excited about that possibility that with good strategy, we can make a, a great change in this society. Okay, so final question here. What's, a, what's the ideal Omaha in 10 years? What are the big changes that have happened? Oh, the ideal Omaha in 10 years. I would say a dramatic decrease in police funding, if I mean 50% at the minimum. Um, a dramatic decrease in in the amount of officers that we have on the beat. I think it's really important that we think through uh, what affirmative action means in in Omaha. I know that was uh, it was voted down in the legislature in I think 2018, but I think we need to have that conversation again about how we recruit and staff based on what's best for the the constituencies. Uh, you know, students need to see teachers of color. People need to be trained by people of color so that they can feel a, a real welcome into those um, trades and areas of interest. So how are we making sure that we can cr- recruit um, hiring staff the best talent and how do we make sure that it's representative of the people that are needing that support. Um, so I think we really need to take a look at that. I've, I'm excited to see that Medicaid is, is actually being talked about in a way that needs to be talked about after three years of the governor um, not doing, uh, not following the will of the people. Now we get to see what happens when um, their voices are heard and how that changes our uh, connection to health. And I think we need to see a real intentional focus on the rebounding of COVID-19. How are we ensuring that these programs are benefiting people most hurt and most harmed by um, by the pandemic, meaning our, our meat packers, meaning our first responders, meaning our wait staff, all of those like things that we exclaimed as like hero jobs that we didn't do anything about and the compliment hasn't served them in any real way. So I'm excited to see what happens and shakes out in those areas. All right, where should people go if they want to see what you're up to, whether it's causes or anything else? Yeah, sure. You can definitely follow me on um, social media, Jaquin Fox, J-A-K-E-E-N, well, J-A space, capital K-E-E-N on Facebook and on Twitter. And I hope that you'll follow the Justice for James Facebook as well. Um, And follow Culture House, too. I, I have positioned a lot of my work out of Culture House. Um, Marcy Yates is a phenomenal executive director and is doing great work on his own as well. So I'll be there a lot. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This was a great conversation. It's always nice to not have to leave here being depressed about the world. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad I could spark a little optimism there, (laughs) even though I don't use the word. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited now by Courtney Bierman, new to the show. The original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. The artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. 
And remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts to listen to the full backlog of conversations and follow us on social media to let us know what you think about all of them. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.